Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And I'm here today with my friend, Carolyn Everson. Uh, Carolyn is a longtime media and sales executive, including, um, I think, 15 years um, running a large part of Facebook's advertising business. She's now uh, a board member on a few companies you might have heard of, Disney, Coca-Cola, and Under Armour, which is amazing. We will talk about those as we go today. Uh, Carolyn, it's great to see you here. It's great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. You have had uh, an amazing career, and uh, I, I love doing these in-depth interviews on Friday because um, I think a lot of people um, love actually hearing the story of how someone got where they got. Um, so you're super well-known for your role at Facebook, um, uh, but uh, not everyone knows how you got there and the things that you've done since. So um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and you and I met pretty early in both of our careers, not quite at the beginning, uh, Very close to but, the end. <laughs> but pretty early, I you actually get credit for me starting Return Path, um, which is a story for another day. Um, and it's a uh, good story, it's one of my most proud moments. <laughs> it's, it, no, it's a great story, and it's a story of of um, of me not doing something else uh, that uh, um, which you and I were working on together, which led to that. So, um, so let, let's start with sort of the early part of your career, and I, I'll define that for the moment as like pre Facebook. Um, and pre-Facebook was a lot of stuff for you. It was Accenture, it was business school, it was Disney, which I didn't realize until I just looked at your profile. Um, and uh, probably not a lot of people have gone from, uh, you know, kind of the Imagineering team to the board. Um, it was Zagat. I don't say I'm the only one, but I'm, I might, I'm certainly the only one on the current board, the current board that has worked yeah. at Disney. Yes. Um, so we'll come back to that. And then Bob Iger, of course. But... Right, right. Um, then Zagat, uh, the restaurant guide, which is where you and I met, um, and then Prime Media, and then Viacom and MTV. So let, let's do those those sort of as a group. Um, and you know, obviously that that got you from um, Accenture and the world of management consulting into the thing that ended up being your career, which is kind of media um, and uh, and ad sales. Um, sort of talk about that journey. Like how how did you how did you end up in the field that that has kind of made you made you who you are? Well, I think it's always easy to look in the rear view mirror and try yes. to piece together how did this all happen? But I think probably what's most important is to say that it wasn't planned. And for example, Facebook wasn't started when I was in college. Um, so if I had thought about one day working at Facebook, Facebook hadn't existed. Right. And so the the lot of lessons and I can connect the dots, I think, in, in sort of chapters are much easier to explain sort of retroactively than perhaps when I was in the moment. Um, but the the quick story of the journey is I was I graduated from Villanova University. I thought I was going to law school. I took the LSATs, didn't do as well as I had wanted to. Got into a few schools, but wasn't feeling it. And my brother, who's 10 years older than I am, said, you really should go into, you should do something in business. And I wound up applying to a number of different jobs. And Anderson Consulting, which eventually became Accenture, gave me an opportunity to join their strategy practice, which may not sound like a big deal, but I was the only female hired that year in 1993, I was the only person from a non-Ivy League hired. So it was a big deal to get in from Villanova at that time. 
And that gave me some foundation uh, for the business world. And then from there, it's really been opportunistic and about relationship building. So I was at Accenture, Anderson Consulting. I was working on a project of strategic alliances, went to Wharton for one week to do a management program on the topic. And an executive at Disney was in the class. And on Friday afternoon, he came over and said, would you ever consider working for the Disney company? And I thought it was like the greatest question that had ever happened because I've been a Disney fan from the earliest I can remember. And so then I went to go work at Walt Disney Imagineering. And that from there, I started to understand that actually where I really love to be involved is with consumer brands, brands that touch people, whether it's emotionally or in utility ways, but can really fundamentally change people's lives. That executive at Disney that hired me, Charles Adams, had gone to business school. So he was encouraging me eventually to go back. I did. I got caught up in the crazy 1997 through 99.com 1.0 craze, and everyone was trying to start a business. I was too. I decided to do one that I was passionate about, which was pets, and attempted to launch pets.com. Got raised, raised money, $5 million from Hummer Winblad. And one of the stipulations was that they would hire a CEO, they did. And when they brought the CEO in, we met and we had a fundamental difference of opinion about the business. I thought she was going to bankrupt the business and she fired me. So I graduated from business school without a job. By the way, I don't think I knew that story. Yeah. And and I'm not, knowing both of you, um, I'm not surprised to hear there was a difference of opinion. Yeah. So what's interesting, Matt, I'm not surprised you don't know it. And I'll tell you why, which is maybe another insight for this, this discussion. I buried it, meaning I took it off my resume. I didn't talk about it. Yep. I didn't talk about it until I got to Facebook. Um, and actually, Cheryl, I credit Cheryl with giving me the courage to uh, eventually start talking about it because I blurted it out one day in a conversation with her that I had been fired from my own company. What I didn't realize is I should have talked about it because it gave me such cred in the tech industry. People love stories of like failed entrepreneurs or getting fired from, how do people get fired from their own company? But I was embarrassed and I hid it. Um, So when I met you post-business school, um, it was kind of not discussed. And uh, so I'm not surprised you didn't know it, but it is an important part of the story because I think it shaped me in in a lot of ways. Uh, my confidence was rocked, and I really started to understand the importance of who I was going to work with and for going forward. Business school happens, as I mentioned. Get I, I graduate without a job. I I wind up at Zagat. That's where you and I met. Um, it was a really interesting opportunity to be part of a family business, the only outside hire or the first big outside hire at the time. Raised a lot of money, 31 million, General Atlantic and Kleiner, and sort of was off to the races. But I was, you know, my last name was never going to be Zagat. And um, that comes with the territory. Uh, But it was great learning experience. And from there, somebody that had met me in that process, you know, brought me to Prime Media. And I was at Prime Media for a few years. And I started to really hone in on my general manager skills, um, not just ad sales. I was running multiple digital businesses. And then from there, somebody had recommended me to go to Viacom. And so that is sort of the trajectory. And then when I was at Viacom, 
a uh, we were working on a massive, massive deal, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars with Microsoft. And that is how Microsoft came to the door and said they'd like me to, you know, go run their sales and marketing, trade marketing team. And I think for me, I remember probably the biggest pivots were when I was at Viacom, one of, and I was trying to decide if I was going to go to Microsoft. There were three things that I thought about. One, I really wanted to be in more of a pure digital business because I the trends were obvious. Number two, I wanted to be in a global business or okay. have a global role because um, it was also very clear that that's the direction that many of the client and advertisers were headed. Well, and the funny thing is like Zagat was, was like a local business. Um, Viacom and MTV were kind of national businesses. <laughs> Yeah, so the interesting like thing about I know Zagat. When I was at Zagat, some of the earliest deals we did were actually licensing our content in in places like Japan. Right. So I had some taste of it, but I didn't have like a meaty enough global role. And then the third thing was, I wanted to run something that was going to be core to the business success. And at the time, advertising was not core to Microsoft's success. I mean. You know, I like to, the way I think about it is like, if that business, you know, catches a cold, does the whole organization have pneumonia and Microsoft would have been fine at that time if advertising didn't do well, but I kind of wanted to be in the hot seat, you know, and having to deliver. And then, you know, nine months later, I wound up having the opportunity to go to Facebook where I spent a decade and a half. So um, it was quite an experience. Um, started with a team of less than 100 people, uh, left at, you know, about almost 5,000 people, uh, operated in a few countries when I started to practically every country around the world, except, you know, the, the suspects that you would think <laughs> couldn't operate in China. And not um, a lot of Iran, Iran and business. North Korea. <laughs> Correct. Yes. But other than that, we were pretty much, um, we were operating everywhere. Um, and, you know, I did a short stint at Instacart, um, which I'm happy to talk about. And then really made a significant pivot recently to do a portfolio life and uh, have been able to assemble a really incredible portfolio of companies that I'm on the board with, as well as a private equity firm and a couple of VCs that I, that I work with. Yeah, no, look, it's, it's, it is a great, uh, it's been a great career and you are very mid-career. Um, you, I, I'm, I'm, of- I'm keeping that in mind. There's, I'm part of the Henry Crown Fellowship and the Crown family supports that they do a ton of amazing work in Chicago. And one of the more senior members is 88 years old. And um, when he met me a few years ago, I think I was like 47. He was, he looked at me and he goes, you're, you're like not even halfway done. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a different perspective. It is, yes. I like to think people of our vintage are quite, are, are quite young still. So exactly. Um, well, let, let's, let's go back and unpack a couple of things that I think will be interesting for people to listen to. And I'm going to start with a, a, maybe an unusual one. And it's one I haven't asked anyone before on this show. Um, talk about business school and not from the perspective of sort of what you got out of it necessarily, but um, do you do you feel like there is always value for someone to get an MBA or only sometimes? And like, if you see, like, do you ever write a job spec that says MBA required, MBA preferred? Like, how, how do you think about that? Because as, as you know, I never went to business school and I was on and off. Should I go? Should I not go for like eight years before I finally killed it? Um, but uh, but I always wonder, I always wonder about that from the perspective of a hiring manager who did go to business school? So I definitely 
try not to make MBA a requirement for job descriptions. I think earlier in my career, I, I did. And I certainly have changed that um, for a variety of reasons. But I think business school is really amazing for a few different things. And if you don't need these few different things, then perhaps you can go and not go to business school and be totally fine, which many people have. I think it's excellent if you are on a career trajectory and you want to fundamentally change it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a lot of people come in from the military and wanted to change and go into finance or consulting or entrepreneurship. We had people in consulting that wanted to pivot out of it. So I think career changes because it gives you a two-year, you know, real deep dive. You see a lot of different types of industries by the, especially if you do the case study method, you can have an internship. So I think it's great for that. I think it's even better for the network. You know, I have this unbelievable network of business school classmates and, you know, we, to this day, which I graduated in 99, we still have a WhatsApp group. Everybody is, it's everything from happy birthday. And we remember people's birthdays to um, people are looking to raise money for their businesses. They're looking for hiring recommendations. They, someone needs help on health, the health situation. It's just a network that will show up for you, I think, day in and day out. So those things are amazing. But do you have to have an MBA? No. And I think that you learn a tremendous amount on the job. And I think if you're in something that you love, which, you know, a lot of people are fortunate enough to be in that situation, then there's, you know, no need to step off the treadmill and and, and go to the, go get your MBA. Yeah, it was certainly, um, it was hard to do in the late nineties because there was so much interesting stuff going on. Outside. Exactly. Um, and I think a lot of people that you were in business school with were probably starting dot coms on the side or um, or the yes. like. So, um, all right. So that's interesting. I want to I want to move now to talk a little bit more about Microsoft. So, you you said something really interesting, which is that you know if you um, one of the things you learned was that hey, if you want to if you're going to go do something, you want it to be core to the company, and ad sales was not core to Microsoft at the mm -hmm. time. When you took the job, obviously you knew that, right? Ad sales was even less core to yes. Microsoft, but yes. there must have been something, and I, if I remember correctly, you were hired by Steve Ballmer, right? Yes. So there, there must have been something in the pitch to you that was like, yeah, I'm going to go make ad sales core to Microsoft. What what was that? Like, what was that experience like, even though it wasn't years and years and years, it must have been fascinating. I mean, Microsoft's, you know, one of the oldest and most respected tech companies on the planet. Yes. Yeah, so look, Steve was very compelling, is very compelling. And the opportunity there to be squarely in digital, not have legacy linear businesses like I did at Viacom. TV, yeah, exactly. To be in a global role and literally oversee all of the teams around the world. Those things were super, super compelling. And I think that if, I, I really believe if, if Facebook hadn't called, that I would have been at Microsoft for years. I still could have been there. I, I, who knows, but I wasn't looking, it wasn't like I got in and then was like, oh no, I need to get out. That was not the case at all. And I really struggled with even taking the phone call from Facebook. I was like, I can't do this. I'm a very loyal person. How I just had met the teams around the world. How am I possibly going to do this? But I, the opportunity at Facebook just felt more right at the time and to build something from scratch in a product that I really did believe in. And that's what swayed me. I do think now in hindsight, 
I look back and say, my goodness, you know, being responsible for revenue from about a billion to up, you know, when I left, it was on a trajectory of a hundred billion. Like Facebook couldn't operate without its ad business. Like it is mad business. Exactly. And I think there is something about being that central and that core. Um, Now, over time, Microsoft has built a bigger ad business and it's very important to them. So again, it could have been a timing thing, but there were very specific reasons in Steve's pitch that were compelling. Um, I was, you know, going to be one of uh, two women that were a corporate vice president, which is a big deal at Microsoft. Um, And so it really, it, it accelerated my career growth. Yeah. So, um, so Facebook, uh, what year did you join? I joined in 2011. 2011. So the company's already been around for seven, eight, nine it had, years. It now. had been around, not public yet, right. um, not but, public. It had been, but it had been around. It was, yes, pre-IPO. And um, you, did you report to Cheryl or to David Fisher? No, I reported to David Fisher. Um, David and Cheryl had worked together for many, many years um, at the Treasury Department, as well as Google. Um, and David was my boss for my entire 10, 10 and a half years. Um, take us, take us on the inside. What was, what were the leadership levels like at Facebook? I mean, I think for so many people, even people who are in tech, who are, you know, you know, experienced entrepreneurs, even those in media, like Mark, Cheryl in particular, that it feels a bit like, uh, amorphous. Um, what was it like being on the leadership team there? I think Facebook's leadership evolved dramatically over, you know, 10 and a half years. You know, you have to realize Mark was sort of growing up with the company and the thing, I mean, there's so many sort of remarkable things to say about Mark, but one of the, I think his best traits is that he is so deeply intellectually curious and would study like early on was, would study like exceptional CEOs. And you could just see Mark's comfort level getting better and better over the years, right? With he would do weekly Q and A's and those got better and better. He would get better with press and uh, better with with earnings calls when, when we went public. And so, you know, I was sort of watching him evolve into arguably one of the generation's, you know, greatest leaders that we've seen. Um, and he's in sort of rarefied air in, in terms of, of that. The leadership team was uh, also really composed of people that had been with Mark almost from the very beginning, at least the tenure that I was there. Um, you know, folks that had been practically from day one. Um, and, and many of them are still there. So Javier Olivon is the COO. Um, he, he is the current COO, but he had been with Mark practically from day one. Andrew Bosworth was Mark's TA at Harvard. He's the chief technology officer at Facebook, Chris Cox, who runs product, um, as well as some of the, the newer products that are coming out. So, so that's, let, let's, let's pause Very that loyal second. team. That, that's remarkable, not just because they're loyal, but, um, the, you know, very few executives scale from zero to hundred yeah. million in revenue, That's let right. alone hundred billion or wherever Facebook is now. And, and to have a few of those in the same company at the leadership level is, is really extraordinary. How do you, like, what do you attribute that to? Is it something about the culture? Was it the tone mark set? Was it cult, you know, uh, coaching and mentoring, intentional, lucky? <laughs> 
I I think that they're um I think they're, you know, it's probably like you put a lot of things in a blender and you mix it up. And this is this is what has transpired. I think that there was tremendous belief in Mark, in Mark as a leader and Mark's mission. Um, because any of those folks that I, I just happen to name three, Javier, Chris Cox, and Andrew Bosworth, any of those three could have gone on and started their own companies. Um, they're certainly independently wealthy at this point. So they have everything from a financial standpoint. Um, and yet they're completely motivated and come in and work just as hard as anyone every day. And so it's mission. I think it's incredible. They're incredibly mission driven. They believe that they are, you know, serving a purpose. And I think it's hard when you are working on something as grand of a scale as Facebook. I know I felt this when I left. It was like, now what do I do? Like, what, like, what, how do I think about impact when I am having an impact with billions of people every day? and 10 million plus businesses around the world. Like everything is just so at a, such a scale that it kind of is hard, I think, to find your way after you leave a company like Facebook because you have to recalibrate, right? You have to remember what it was like to join Facebook right. when we were not reaching that amount of people or those businesses. And that's an adjustment. I, that is, that's an adjustment. I think the thing you just said that was interesting um, my question was about like how do these people scale themselves or even how did you scale yourself? And your answer was was about mission and, yes. and purpose. And you know, having a strong mission and purpose and feeling the impact of your work is is absolutely like rocket fuel. Correct. Uh, right. So I, I get that. And that still doesn't make you capable mm. of being a strong and effective executive. Mm of a giant business when the last thing you did was a small business. Um, so even for you, for you, as you think about how you scaled your own capabilities over time, how did you think about that? Um, I think the, the number one way we all scaled was going back to Mark's recruiting tip, which was to hire people better than us. And I know that sort of those three I mentioned myself, like that is how we thought about the world um, and our role. Because you can only scale so much as a leader so quickly, but if you surround yourself with people that are better than you um, and have different expertise, things can start like flying, especially if you get people aligned around a purpose and a mission. And I think that was core to the success. I mean, did we do um, leadership training? Yes. Do I think that it was, you know, completely earth shattering and unlike anything out there? It was, I'm sure it was good. But it's hard to teach this. It's and you're absolutely right that certain leaders. I had leaders that were amazing at opening a new office in a country, getting it to a certain level, and then they just hit a plateau. And you would see it. You would see it in the numbers. You'd see it in the pulse scores of how their teams were feeling about um, how, the opportunity. And my job was then to say, okay, one of two things, either, look, you've been amazing at this and sort of time to tap out and gracefully figure out how to do that with them. Or let me get you into another role that allows you to build something up because maybe that's what you are. Maybe you're the zero to one person, but you're not the one to 10 or one to a hundred. And you have to know, I think your, your skills and, and the team around you in order to get people in the most effective roles. 
Uh, let me ask a different question about Facebook, um, which is around Cheryl and in particular around Lean In. Uh, so I think you were there when she published Lean In. Mm-hmm. And um, I read I was, I was, read it like the minute it came out. I loved it. I wrote a blog post about it. Um, I actually got an email from her uh, at, like the day I wrote the blog post. So clearly like one of the PR people or book promoters was like, hey, this is like a CEO blog. You should write him a note. I got a very nice note from her. What was the impact of Lean In either either to you or within Facebook? Because obviously it had, you know, impact and, and ripple effect, you know, in the world at large. But but was that a big thing at Facebook? Was it a side thing? Well, I think that Cheryl's vision on Lean In and her work there definitely set a tone around diversity of leadership. And that was something that, you know, obviously she cared deeply about. Um, So did Mark, by the way. So it wasn't just Cheryl. And I think that it showed up in particularly women wanting to advocate a bit more for themselves, potentially apply for jobs that they otherwise may not have applied for because they were finding inspiration um, in the stories that were shared. Um, and I think, you know, her lean in circles that were started and still are ongoing around the world. She just launched lean in girls for younger, um, younger women, um, are really impactful, you know, ways for women to network and get together. Ironically, before she even wrote the book, um, we never called it a lean in circle because we didn't have that vernacular, um, but, I have a group of women that we get together uh, every couple of months for breakfast or dinner from business school that are in the technology media industry. And we share everything with each other, how our career is going, how things are going at home, whatever challenges we might be having on any level. And there is just something I think really helpful to have a network of people that you can fully, fully trust. I I read a book early on in my career. It was by a McKinsey partner. It was about every person should have their own board of directors. And I, you know, it's not like you sit at a big table and have an agenda and, you know, a gavel and you start the meeting. But that concept of who are your personal boards of directors and your consigliere team that can be with you. I have a number of those circles and, and they've been hugely impactful um, on me, hugely. And I go to them for different things, depending on what right. decision they be. Um, I would guess that that is one of the things that helped you scale over the years uh, was, have, was being intentional about yes. having that informal group and then using it. For sure. And, you know, my, I have had like too many people to list out on, on this, but there have been a number of people that have been encouraging me, pushing me, giving me confidence when I left confidence, um, supporting me, talking about me in rooms when I was not in a room, which is really critical to advocacy, not just mentorship, but really championing me. And you know, it sort of takes a village and I've been blessed and fortunate to build a very strong network of people that have been instrumental in my career. All right. Last Facebook question for you. Where does Facebook go from here? Um, you know, I think that company more than most has kind of taken its lumps over the last few years, whether it's uh, around politics, around algorithms and 
teenage mental health. Um, what what what's Facebook look like in five years or ten years? I I think that Mark is one of the few leaders out there that has vision that goes beyond decades. Um, you know, his in his own foundation with his wife um, Priscilla. They're working on, you know, he's trying to cure cancer and cure diseases that he would like to have eradicated from earth. And he takes like a hundred year view of things. So I don't know if it's, I don't think I have a great description of what Facebook's going to look like in five years. If you had asked me even six months ago, did I think that they were going to launch a competitor to Twitter or now X um, called Threads? Uh, you know, of course, I'm not there. I don't have the visibility that they were going to do that. And yet they pulled that off. I do believe that Mark has a very strong opinion that we are going to be living in a blended digital and physical world. And his work on the metaverse, which I know has received, you know, both praise as well as a lot of criticism, given the amount of money that he's spending. I think he sees something in the future where there is this blending of the two worlds, even more than we currently are. I mean, I would argue we already blended our, we're already blending digital and physical between our gaming, how often we're on our devices. So I suspect that if you look five to 10 years out, there'll be more of his vision coming to light. Um, And whether his vision of the world, which is more virtual reality or Evan Spiegel at Snap, which is more we're in a physical world with glasses and more augmented reality or some blending of the two, uh, you know, I think both of them see things a little bit more than the average person. That's why they are where they are. Correct. (laughs) Um, So you said a minute ago that, uh, you know, when you leave a, a, a journey like the one you were on at Facebook, you have to recalibrate. Yes. Um, so you left and you went to Instacart. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about a company that's blending the digital and physical, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, what and you weren't there all that long, um, but what was what was sort of the one learning um, if you had to distill it down to like one big thing that you got out of that experience? Well, I I know that I went too quickly, um, and I think so. There's there's a lot of learnings. That's that. a career, a good career learning. Yeah. Take your time. You know, when you're making a subs- a very substantive shift in a career, and I mean, I bled blue for Facebook. Um, I traveled 90% of my time. I made a ton of sacrifices um, personally. Um, so I just think I needed more time. That So number one is time. Number two is do better diligence around the role. And, you know, this is my fault. This is not Instacart's fault. Um I think the role was presented as the president role um, with a wide range of responsibility, which was exciting for me. But when I got there, it was very clear that what Fiji, um, who's the CEO, who I have enormous respect for, what she really needed was somebody to manage the grocery relationships and the advertising business. And that was so small compared to what I had just done. It was domestic only. And I love global businesses. And it was a fraction, it was a fraction of what I had done. Um, And that was a mistake. And I should have found, I should have asked more questions. I should have done more diligence. Um, I deeply believe, I love Instacart. I use it all the time. So uh, as a consumer, it's an amazing service. And the team there is, you know, I've got enormous respect for. So I, 
I, I think they're going to do really, really well um, over over time, but it was not the right role for me at that time. And I jumped too quickly and I didn't do enough diligence. Yeah, that's uh, uh, the, the, the thing on my resume that has been expunged from the record uh, uh, was also related to that uh, uh, lack of diligence. So um, we, we could talk about that some other time. <laughs> um, so one of the things you said early on is you fell in love early in your career with consumer brands. Mm-hmm. And, um, and fast forward to now, you're on the board of probably the two best recognized consumer brands in the world. They got to be two of the top five or 10, Disney mm-hmm. and Coke. Um, as well as Under Armour, you know, fantastic company yeah. and product, mm-hmm. not, not quite the level of, of Disney and Coke. Um, talk a little bit about the experience you've had on those two boards, whether it's the things they have in common or the things they don't have in common. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of what, what is it like inside the boardroom of some of the most iconic companies on the planet? Well, look, it's a complete honor and privilege to be on those boards. Um, it is not something that, you know, again, that I planned for. If you had seen me in early of 2022, which is, I was at Instacart for a few months, January, 2022, I said, okay, I, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to take time, figure out what I really want to do. and time was my friend here because Coca-Cola came in about five months into that journey. And then Disney came in about eight months into that journey. And then Under Armour came in about nine months into that journey. And what the opportunity to sit on a board of directors on those three companies with incredible fellow directors who are mostly CEOs um, or prior CEOs or investors um, is, is just I feel like, you know, talk about going back to your MBA, in many ways, I'm sort of seeing a whole new round of lessons and and really leadership uh, takeaways and, and challenges in terms of transforming businesses and geopolitical dynamics. And I mean, you can list the topics that would happen in a boardroom of any of those three companies. And I'm exposed to all of it. And at the same time, I feel like I'm bringing a lot of value with my experience around my emphasis on culture, which I bring to all three of those boards, um, digital uh, mindset, how to think about business transformation, how to think about growth um, versus just cost cutting, how to think about strategically the pivots that are happening with consumer behavior. And so it's just been, it's, you know, it's, it's been an incredible experience to be on those boards. And I have rounded that out with, um, I work at Premira um, as a senior advisor a few days a week, and they've put me on three of their private boards, so much smaller company boards, um, which have a totally different feel because there you're practically rolling your sleeves up and yeah. really digging into the issues, whereas obviously you've got phenomenal leadership um, and long-term leadership at some of the other companies that I'm on. And then I do some work with basic startups. Um, I'm helping uh, Victress Capital um, with some of their portfolio companies, and I'm an angel investor in a number of companies. And I sit on the board of a company called Unitary, which is an early stage AI brand safety company. So I have this, I mean, some of my meetings are for people on a Zoom 
virtual and we're literally like going through okay this is what what's the, the pitch going to be and which client which partners are we going to talk to and how do we price this like I go from that to sitting in a Disney Coca-Cola or Under Armour board meeting with topics that are you know macro in nature around strategic transformation and so intellectually it's super interesting to put the portfolio together I, I'm sure uh you know I can only imagine the the board meeting around Florida and the political situation in Florida with Disney like backed up against a startup board meeting where you're trying to teach a CEO how to read a PL or, or how to read a pitch deck. So um, yeah, wide range, wide range of very wide range. Um, but you said something interesting a second ago, which is sort of um about culture. And we've talked a lot about culture and um and how culture extends into the boardroom. And you know, I think you and I agree, and we talked about in, in the shorter episode the importance of of a healthy culture in the company, and really the importance of a healthy culture of a leadership team setting the tone for the company. Uh, what have you learned about about the culture of a board, mm -hmm. um, and how much it does or doesn't matter to the health and functioning of the board? But then also, does that actually translate to the health and functioning of the company, or is it sort of separate? So I think. The boardroom has to be looked at as a, another version of a leadership team in terms of culture building. And so what I have found, um, you know, I'll use Coca-Cola because I've been on Coca-Cola the longest. It's a little over a year. I have found that the way James um, Quincy runs the board meetings to be an incredible formula. Um, we have a dinner the night before. Um, we have committee meetings the day before and then a dinner. The dinner is just James, the CEO, with the board members. And that is where within two hours, you can get sort of a, a tour of the company. Um, what are the opportunities and the challenges? How is he feeling about you know, a variety of topics? It's just an amazing two-hour immersion. And then you go into the boardroom the next day. Um, and that pattern has it repeats itself and you get to know your fellow board members. Um, I've also spent time, of course, outside those two days with each of the board members. And I think that is really important because you want to get a comfort level to be able to completely speak your mind, mm. to challenge um, when you feel appropriate, to do it, of course, in a respectful and collaborative and collegial way, of course. Um, you know, you, I don't, I think a combative board member is probably highly destructive. I've seen that movie when I was on the Hertz board many years ago. Um, that was not a healthy boardroom. And it, there's, it's just so different when there is a healthy dialogue where there's no pretenses. The CEO can be vulnerable, can talk about things that they're concerned about, can put questions on the table and get actual feedback. And I also think that you get out of it, what you put into it. And one of the things that has impressed me um, all in all three of my major boards, um, but I'll, I'll just stick with Coca-Cola as the example, their CMO and leadership team asked me to go to Singapore with them for a week. I had joined the board in July and in September I was in Singapore and I was with management and they at, they told me I could go to any of the meetings. I could meet with anybody one-on-one -on -one, that I could participate. And I, I immerse myself and I'm doing that again. I'm going to Istanbul um, in a month or so and doing that again. Now that's, I don't have a full-time job, so I can go do that. I can put a lot of extra time 
and work with the company um, in a different way than just showing up for quarterly board meetings. And that is, that's the way I've wanted to construct my, my big board assignments. Well, and it gives you, it gives you an opportunity to have more of an impact probably yes. than some of your fellow directors. But the takeaway I have from that, uh, and it, it's no different than a three-person startup board or a five-person startup board in this regard, the best boards are the ones that function like high-performing teams. Correct. Um, and it sounds that's like exactly. Coca-Cola is that, and they've done a good job of cultivating that. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, all my other fellow board members do different things based on their, you know, availability and uh, with their schedules, because some of them are, you know, full-time CEOs. But collectively, when we come together, there is a great chemistry. And, you know, being a new board member um, can sometimes be intimidating. And I have felt very welcomed in all three cases and welcome to speak my mind, which has been great. Um, well, that is that is the sign of a healthy board culture for sure. Yeah. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I think we'll end here. Carolyn, okay. thank you so thank much you. Thanks for, for sharing your experience and and uh, and just tremendous wisdom um, with our audience. Uh, thanks so much. Great to see you. 